0: Welcome to Season 7 of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a Transatlantic Conversation. I'm your host, Penn South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there is an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings and it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Chinese poet, teacher, and member of the Independent Chinese Pen Center, Zhang Wei Qi. In July 2022, after nearly two years in detention, Zhang Weiqi was sentenced to six years in prison. He was accused of, and I quote, inciting subversion of state power, end quote, an accusation routinely utilized by the PRC regime to target dissident writers who peacefully criticise the government's repression. The court additionally sentenced Zhang to three years of deprivation of his political rights, including his right to freedom of expression and his right to assemble after his imprisonment. Several reports indicated that Zhang's arrest was due to a video he shared on social media with a very small group of people, in which he called on Xi Jinping to step down from power and for an end to CCP one-party rule. After Zhang's arrest, authorities shut down a private teaching and art business that was owned and run by Zhang and his wife. Later, after his conviction, his wife was reportedly threatened by her employer that her contract would be terminated if she spoke to foreign media about Zhang's case and the court decision. Zhang Kueqi is known for his support of freedom of speech and political reform in China. Due to his activism, he has been subjected to different forms of repression. In 2007, the government shut down the Chinese Contemporary Poetry Platform, an online platform that Zhang founded and edited. PEN South Africa joins PEN International, PEN America, the independent Chinese PEN Center and PEN centers around the world in calling on the PRC government to ensure Zhang Hui Qi's immediate and unconditional release. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this fourth episode of our Black History season, Sandile Ngidi and Uhuru Palafala commemorate Korapetse, Khositsile's life, work and his legacy. Sandile asks Uhuru about her forthcoming book on Khositsile and the Black Arts Movement, as well as the significance of his exile in the U.S. They share their memories of him, read from his poetry, and reflect on his influence and contribution to poetry and culture in both South Africa and the US. Sandy Lenghiri is a poet, art critic, and Zulu English literary translator. He is currently studying at the University of Cape Town's Department of Historical Studies, courtesy of the Andrew Millen Foundation and the History Access Program. His M.A. dissertation is on the South African poet Mazisi Kunene. He obtained an M.A. in Creative Writing at Rhodes, his poetry chapbook, You Can't Tell Me Anything Now, was published in 2018, and his poetry features in the collection Halala Madiba, Nelson Mandela in Poetry, and in Five Points magazine. Sandile is guest editor of a special edition of English in Africa dedicated to Bessie Head. Together with Prof. Innocenti Amtlambi, he's the editor of M'Tiro Yavula Vula, Arts, National Identities and Democracy in South Africa.
1: This dazzling revolutionary poet, who was a jazz poet, Brawili Khosizile, features prominently in that line, in that epic dance of revolutionaries from here to the African diaspora and everywhere.
0: Uhuru Palafala holds a PhD from the University of Cape Town and is a senior lecturer in the English department at Stellenbosch University. She was a 2021-2022 Department of Higher Education and Technology's Future Professors Program Fellow. She heads a mellon funded research project, Recovering Subterranean Archives, which investigates South African culture in exile with the view to repatriate and republish it. Through this project, she republished the 1981 poetry anthology, Malibongwe by ANC Women in Exile. She recently published Mine, 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 a mythopoetic epic on the migrant labour system in South Africa. Her forthcoming books are a monograph on former National Poet Laureate Korapeze Khozitsile, and Beloved and Bloomed, a meditation on the political uses of love and radical community making. She's a records collector with ongoing projects in the field of the Black Sonic.
2: And this is what he brings with him to the U.S. They read in his work something otherwise than what they are used to. In their quest for Black aesthetics, they see in Hositsile's work and hear in Hositsile's work a culture of elsewhere, a culture that is divested from white colonial culture.
0: Thank you for joining us for this conversation.
1: Welcome to PEN South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the fourth episode of season seven. I'm Sandile Ngidi. What a delight and honor to be with you today It's such a splendid moment to be talking with the awesome scholar, performer, activist, sonic documentary creator, And a dear sister, Dr. Uhuru Palafala. I'm in the studio in Cape Town on this reluctantly warm and now slightly windy and rainy day. And Uhuru is in Cairo. You might hear some ambient noise during the conversation. Life is going on. Take it easy. Hello, Uhuru! Uhuru! How are you? You're in Cairo. My goodness. Hey, realocha. Realocha. re-al-o-cha me. what is happening? <laughs> what are you doing in Cairo? <laughs> Everything is iron, my sister.
2: Yeah, I am well too. I continue on the mission to record our history. I am here on sabbatical in. Cairo, working on my second book project.
1: Hallelujah. Congratulations.
2: Let me call it my second scholarly book project because there are other books also out
1: there. My God. And you have just published a new book, uh, Mine, Mine, Mine. Is it Mine, Mine, Mine? Or am I reading it wrong? It is Mine, Mine, Mine. You are correct. My God. There's a musical ring to it. Tell us about Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) Mine,
2: mine, mine. Yes, it is the story of my grandfather's journey as a migrant laborer Mm -hmm. in the gold mines of Johannesburg. Right. It's a story about his life, but it's also a story about our collective grandfathers, our fathers, our sons, our brothers who worked in the mines. But it's also a story of my grandmother, our grandmothers and our mothers and sisters and daughters who had to wait, who lived with um, the constant kind of waiting, longing, desire, heartbreak of having one of their family members, sometimes more than one, missing in the home because they are toiling in the womb of the earth in Johannesburg. It's a story about Southern Africa, but it's also a story about the Congo. It is a story about transatlantic plantation cultures. It is a story about trans-Indian Ocean plantation cultures. So it is an epic uh, today called
1: a book-length poem. It sounds like it. It reminds me of Ibrahim uh, Sigela's Stimela. There's a trade. You remember, you remember. (laughs) That train,
2: Abuti, that train, you know how the train is so celebrated as this symbol of modernity and of progress and of industrial revolution. It is imperative for us to start looking at its underbelly as train swallowed young, fit men and returned to us broken dying man, you know, we have to start looking at this train as the um, catastrophe that befell black life and black sociality.
1: Is this a sad book? Would you say melancholic or is a critique that you know is relatively balanced at all um, the emotional level, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I I don't peddle in melancholia and pessimism. Right it is important to look history squarely in the face. And there we find death. We find social death, psychic death, spiritual death. But at the same time, we find people asserting their yeah. right to live. We find there people creating in the midst of mm. disaster and catastrophe, mm. recreating language, making music, being very inventive. And creating a culture out of disaster, out of catastrophe. Yeah, so yeah. that when we when we visit the ashes of history's fire, there is something to be salvaged that is so beautiful, that is so life-giving and vitalizing for our own mission in this time. So mind, mind, mind does look at history squarely in the face, but there there is not only death and pessimism and melancholia, There right. is also a birthing of a black modernity. There's a birthing of a black sound. There's a birthing of black urban cultures at the same time. So we have to hold these multiple truths alongside one another.
1: We, we are the music people.
2: We are the music people. Hallelujah. Yes, we are the yeah. music people. <laughs> yeah. And it's only in moving with the rhythms of history, that we can hear the call of history, that we can hear the call of the mission of our generation, that we can hear the echoes of what has been left behind, so that we can pick it up and recreate and improvise and produce a new intergenerational song.
1: There's a sense in which history when we return to history, when search of the lost African drama, what we lost and what we hope to get back, whatever it is, and in whatever way we reimagine it, there's always mm. that sense, and your book gives me that sense, that there's something to be salvaged. There are gaps, mm. there are gaps in the memory bank that needs to be filled. And you Mm. go there to retrieve the voices of your, the voices of the past that are meant to give us life, not a sense that we just lost, but a sense that we are resilient, that we are alive and we will be alive, we'll survive the hurricane.
2: Mm, Absolutely. And you know, it's very, very important to fill those gaps in the memory bank, as you say. And in my own quest to do that, which is my life quest as a scholar and a researcher and a writer, I have found that it becomes vital and vitalizing for us to find not only books in the memory banks, in the archives, we have to find our sound knowledges. And by sound knowledges, of course, I'm also, you know, playing on sound sound is durability when something right. is sound it's also durable so that its longevity it's long but sound knowledge also means our oral cultures our oral traditions and our performative cultures that's right. why it was important for me to undertake this task of interviewing exile returnees to go and sit with them with the elders and listen to them Deep listening as a methodology and listen to them as they recount their movements in exile, which is also our history, which is a way for us to also see where we have been, to feel what we have seen and to know where we are today and to be sure that where we are today is connected to where they have been. So. The recordings that I was doing, the interviews that I was doing with exile returnees was for me another way of filling in the gaps of fetching knowledge that is South African history, that is personal history from exile and repatriating
1: it back to the nation. One of the figures that feature prominently in your work is our celebrant today, and that is none other than Kiurapizi Wili He was born in 1938, and if I'm not mistaken, you'll correct me, when he died in 2018, he was a few months shy of 80. Am I correct? Mm,
2: absolutely. He would have turned 80 in 2018.
1: Right. So just take us back to the legacy that this dazzling revolutionary poet, who was a jazz poet now that you're talking about sonic recordings. uh, Rawili Josezile features prominently in that line, in that epic dance of revolutionaries from here to the African diaspora and everywhere. Just take us through that legacy and what it represents for you and in your work in particular. Yeah,
2: thanks for that question. So, growing up and hearing all of these stories about these South Africans who were in exile and uh, made such an impact on African-American culture. And that was always intriguing to me because I have always known about African-American culture making such a huge impact on not only my life and my culture, but also on South African black culture and African (laughs) culture, so that the influence was always from the North, from the African-American culture to the South, to us. So when I heard on the streets, as we say, that poets like Keorape Tsekho influenced people like the last poets in the U.S., I was very intrigued indeed because I thought you know what, this is a great opportunity to study a reverse kind of influence where black South Africans leave South Africa and live in exile in the U.S. and make an impact there. We know of Miriam Makeba making an impact. Um, she won a Grammy there and taught people like Harry Belafonte and Nina Simone some African songs from the African Songbook. We know Hugh Masigala's huge impact so as a literary scholar i was quite curious to find out what is happening in the literary field within that framework and following khosithili really was revealing and it continues to be because wow. they arrive and i say they because it was a cohort of black south africans who were exiled by the apartheid government post Sharpeville, which incidentally we are recording on the day before the commemoration of the Sharpeville
1: massacre. Right, because Sharpeville was a major catalyst for that kind of exodus of so many of our talented, dedicated revolutionaries in so many ways.
2: Precisely. And so they arrive in the U.S. in the early 60s and the U.S. is also dealing with its own Severe racial politics, white supremacy. They are waging their own resistance and struggle for civil rights. They are fashioning their own politics that has to be radical and move beyond nonviolent kind of confrontation. So we have the South Africans there within that uh, climate of resistance where South Africans have already gone through the phase of nonviolence in the 50s and they know definitely that doesn't work. And back at home in 63, of course, the ANC had already begun to think of an armed struggle. So they come with so much knowledge of a white totalitarian regime they become invaluable with their experience of decolonial politics. But not only that, they find a kind of cultural landscape where African-Americans are also in an embattled zone to redefine themselves. They are called African-Americans, but America has definitely shown them that they are not full citizens, they are not desired, they are not wanted. So they are starting to reclaim Africa as home, reclaim Africa as an identity. They are changing their names. People like Leroy Jones is becoming Amiri Baraka, Right. Shange, Wohagima Dibuti. And so to have people like Hositsile, within that space, thinking together, organizing together, writing together, and creating these movements such as the Black Arts Movement and the Black Power Movement were so vital for them because they had access in their minds to this Africa that they could only imagine that was so mythical in their minds. And here were these Africans amongst them. So they really rallied around these black South Africans and allowed them to guide the way. And that's how people like The Last Poets end up naming themselves after the poetry that Kocitile wrote. That's how people like Nina Simone end up singing West Wind that she was taught by. Miriam, they were really trying or they really had a deep desire to connect
1: with the continent. Right. Aesthetically as well, this must have done something to the poetry mm-hmm. and whatever else, uh, the artistic, you know, orientation Absolutely. of What are some of the features or those aesthetic movements, you know, shapes and so on?
2: Here, please allow me to just go all the way back because this is also the argument of my forthcoming book on Khositsile that, you know, the place, and you will hear him in interviews saying this himself, that the place of his grandmother and his mother in his life is absolutely invaluable. Right. Madike Ledi and Khobe These are the two women who raised Hosizile right. and instilled a political consciousness within him. Hosizile was politicized in the home. Madike Lady banned the English language in the home. She only allowed Sitswana to be spoken in the home. And furthermore, she continuously said to him, Do not take any nonsense from them, you hear? And you see this phrase coming up in his throat." <laughs> but what that has done is that it instilled or sowed or seeded this love for the Tswana language in Khositsile and Sitzwana literature. Right. And when he left for exile in 1961, instructed by senior members of the ANC, he packed amongst his few belongings a few Sitzwana literary classics. Amongst them a novel, a drama, some poetry that were available at the time. Who are some of the authors
1: that come to mind? Raditla
2: was one of the authors, and uh, I forget the author of D... Din Tsun was one of the novels that he took with him. Okay. And we have to just pause there right. and really not undermine the thread of continuity from these lessons that were taught in the home, right. that you must love your language, you must speak your language, and you must let your language shape your politics and your cultural aesthetic, so your poetic aesthetic and Khosizile really took that to heart and he drew from Setswana proverbs, from Setswana cosmology, so to say, in his poetry, even though his poetry was written in English, there is a way in which if you're a Setswana Sessutu sepedi speaker or you're proficient in the languages, you can hear the Setswana in the English poetry it shapes that the rhythms and the cadences and the vernaculars and philosophies the sibilances of the lines of his poetry but also as you say the cosmology shapes a particular philosophy of being a philosophy of knowing that you find in his poetry so that these lessons that he learned at home allow him to Right from a positionality of blackness against the imposed colonial culture that he would have grown up with and learned at school in primary and high school, he leans into what I call the matriarchive. He leans into the matrilineal influence in his work right. to shape a radical politic, and this is what he brings with him to the US. They read in his work something otherwise than what they are used to. In their quest for Black aesthetics, they see in Hositsile's work and hear in Hositsile's work a culture of elsewhere, a culture that is divested from white colonial culture, that is operating from outside of white culture, of colonial understanding of the world and of aesthetics, and of being. So that the matriarch becomes this kind of ground from which he wages
1: his resistance. That is powerful, Mm -hmm. real Uhuru writing, so to speak. There's a fascinating line, I might not remember it correctly, but it goes along these lines. Our ancients say, if you shit on the road, you'll find flies on your way back. <laughs> And I love that. I love that. This idea of the ancients
2: say, the ancients say, that right. is exactly what I'm talking about. Right. That he's actually operating right. from another place that is outside of white culture right. or the colonial archive, as it is called. He is saying, I have another archive. It is the archive of the ancients and it allows me to speak from a different place that
1: is not the colonial library.
2: And yes, of course, he's very witty. I mean, he's a...
1: Very witty (laughs) and naughty, (laughs) and and outrightly naughty too. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) He reminds us that, you know, there is joy in resistance. There's pleasure in
1: resistance.
2: There's love in resistance, yes.
1: Right. There's a poem that uh, Vusi Mahlasala has uh, translated into a song that uh, talks about a, a woman who crosses, who mm. gives birth to a healthy child, but having crossed over the fence is something like jumped that. jumped over uh, the it's fence. It's a beautiful...
2: You're talking about Red Song. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Red Song... That's Red Song. Exactly, are, uh, that's Red I Song. I think you're intuitively Red just Song. placing to pointing to places where the <laughs> Matriarchive is at play. Because in Red Song, he is just... Amazing. Completely, yes, so right. you know, speaking from the position of that first line of the poem, armed struggle is right. an act of love. Armed struggle is an act of love. And so he tells us very clearly right. that without love, there's no revolution that matters. You can have a revolution without love, but it will be a revolution that does not bear any fruits that we can all enjoy. And in this poem, you see the whole community. He represents the whole community, people who hide revolutionaries as they move from within the country to the borders, to leave the country, mothers who feed comrades on their way out. He remembers that everybody plays a role. It's not just the men of history who stand on the stages of history and That's give speeches that we will read about 20 years later or post-apartheid or post-independence. It is everyone. It is the mother who hides the comrade. It is the mother who lies to the police and redirects Amazing. them to elsewhere so the comrades can survive. Everybody plays a role in a revolution.
1: And not so long before he left us, He wrote that delightful short poem, a letter from Havana dedicated Mm. to his Mm -hmm. wife, baby. You remember the lines, oh man, those lines. But also going back to that matriarchal archive that you are talking about, isn't it fascinating too that before he left this country, he worked and was mentored by none other Mm -hmm. than Ruth First Mm -hmm. as a journalist. And on his way to exile, he reported one of the main people he reported to was none other than Frini Kinwala, who was already in, in Zambia and had made ways for Oliver Tambo to, to, to get out of mm-hmm. the country after mm-hmm. Chamville. And here are these women. And he goes there in America, Gwendolyn Brooks as well, becomes a major Absolutely. pillar of strength. So that spirit... Of the mothers constantly, constantly keeping him alive, isn't it? Absolutely. Those are
2: great, great points that you are making. He has always gravitated towards women, really understanding that women are invested in a communitarian way of thinking. Women are always thinking beyond the individual, Mm. about the family, if they have one, or the larger community. And so he has always hmm. sought to have that communitarian politic shape his poetic through mm. and through. I mean, even upon his return to South Africa, he mentored young female poets and traveled with them, Philippa De Villiers, traveled with them to Cuba, to China. Including myself. I mean, I was a young, a very young woman when I first met Jose And he had no reason to entrust his life story with me. But he saw what the intention is and what I represent. And he shared his life story with me. And I, I I am forever honored by that,
1: but I also recognize it. Oh, you also traveled with him. Wow. He was such a beautiful uh, somebody to travel with. But I'm also told he enjoyed shopping when he was traveling, uh, shopping for his <laughs> beloved at home and so on. Yes. <laughs> do you know anything about no, that shopping? <laughs> I do not. I
2: do not. I have heard some stories. Yes. <laughs>
1: But also, the music, you know, in his poetry is so palpable, isn't it? You just can't miss it. Yeah. Even the way, the diction, the nuance, so many things he does. And I would imagine it worked so well as well and basically made him fit into the jazz movement of 60s, 70s America as well. You cannot speak
2: of Rawili's poetry without speaking about jazz. Which is in line with these oral Arrange. cultures that raised him, and by oral I really mean the spoken, the O R A L, but also the A U R A L. He he had such a listening ear. He had such a deep listening ear, and recognized that our history is not in the books. If if the books are the are, are the first and last place you look for our history then you will not be informed. You have right. to practice listening, and that's where you will hear our innovation, our inventiveness, our brilliance, our philosophies, and our knowledges. Mm. And so for him, something like jazz fell within these sonic worlds where you could see Black modernity, Black brilliance through improvisation. He absolutely loved and cites Marawi and Bakanga and jazz in his work, but he's also very much invested in the protest songs and the songs of the minds as representing another form of knowing black history, another entry point in seeing where we have been, what we have achieved and our spirit of resistance. So for him, jazz represents a departure through improvisation from that white colonial culture that I was talking about. Improvisation represents to him a break with the order that is given by the status quo. It represents a departure and a break into something else, into listening into the collective and their sound knowledges and their sonic cultures. And it is from that position that he writes and it is from that position that he hears all of the community, from his grandmother to his mother, to the ANC leadership, to the women who hid the comrades, to Langston Hughes, to
1: Blackwell Cultures, and so forth. He also seems to be very determined throughout his journey to maintain, for lack of a better word, a certain moral high ground which says to him, if something is wrong... It is wrong, even if it is done mm. in the name of the revolution, even if it is done in the name of his beloved ANC, it is wrong. Remember that line is yes. kak and yes.
2: yeah, he had uh, anger <laughs> that that was a disappointment. There was, I agree with you, and disillusionment that was occasioned by some of the events leading up to our democratic elections. The poem you cite, Daras Kendiland, he is really lamenting the fact that we are not moving as community. You know, he is someone who was influenced and right. deeply revered. Many thinkers, but definitely Amilcar Cabral shaped his thinking. You know, he right. was fortunate enough to... Go listen to Cabral when Cabral visited Syracuse. Ah,
1: that's fascinating. In New York,
2: I think, in the early 70s. And he was deeply mm. moved by Cabralian philosophy that in the beginning is culture and in the right. end is culture. That the revolution must, must be waged hmm. in the culture of the people so that when we realize the dream of revolution, we are realizing the dreams of the people. And if we do not do that, we will be what we are seeing today. But Cabral said, if we let culture be the baseline of a revolution, we will ensure class suicide. So this idea of class suicide is so important because now we see the capital that has taken over and captured the post-94 government. And what we see (laughs) <laughs> is the opposite of class suicide. We see a very classed society. Why? Yeah. Because we did not root and ground our revolution in culture to ensure that it is culture that informs and governs our decisions, that governs our, the way we shape our parliament, the way we shape our own democracy on our own terms.
1: So the slogan, the people shall govern, Is it an empty slogan?
2: It becomes an empty slogan like many slogans that were were sung and were on placards and were readily on people's lips in the 70s and 80s. I don't have to tell you about the betrayal of the many, many philosophies that were at the heart of the national liberation movements.
1: Right. Let's hear him speak. Do you have a poem that you're going to read for us? So that we hear his voice, the voice of Brawili, I think it's a poem that he dedicated to Gloria Bosman. Are you going to start with that one? Yes,
2: I'm always uh, aware of Brawili's excellent reading voice. When I read his poetry, I'm always (laughs) like, so conscious of how it just will never sound like his voice, but I will give it my best and I will read a poem of his that is titled For Gloria Bossman, just to honor also, you know, the passing of, of Gloria Bossman a couple of weeks ago. I believe it's less than two weeks ago. So it opens with an epigraph right. by Langston Hughes. Her face is like an ancient cameo turned brown by the ages, Langston Hughes. And Langston Hughes, I must have embraced Gloria. How else could he have said, her beauty bends in my heart, a love fire sharp like pain. And if I could, I would borrow a million voices to sing her name, she who gathers the whole world into the body of her soul and immerses it in a moment of sound, vibrant as cleansing ritual and sacrifice. Her head, she throws back the rest of her in steady motion with all the force of the rhythm section. If you want to be loved without restraint, come along, Gloria Bosman is not afraid to take risks. She is into something. Gloria Bosman will bathe your heart in the flames of her song as she plunges into every crevice of all that is her, possessed like a medium, her million voices exploding. Love is in the music. <laughs> Mm, 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 mm. Hi, Brawili's poetry is, uh, oh, uhuru. is fire.
1: <laughs> that is fire. Mm. And he writes several of these tributes. Of course, in this context, our dear sister, beautiful musician, a beautiful friend to all of us, Gloria Bosman, passed suddenly, uh, actually, I think it's, yeah, less than two weeks ago. Mm. And she was laid to rest in Soweto. There was a memorial in her honor at the Gibson Kent uh, Theatre in, in Soweto. Soul rest in peace. Rest in
2: power. Uh, we give thanks. Yeah,
1: rest in power, my sister. Thank you. Thank you so much. So in the context of black history, what would you say are the key lessons that uh, the legacy of Brawi Lee leaves us with?
2: Mm. You know, one of the crucial things that I have learned through this research is that, you know, when we talk about Black consciousness, a consciousness that is Black and the Black consciousness movement that was formed in the late 1960s and thrived in the 70s and 80s. Right. The history books tell us and rightly so they tell us that the black consciousness movement was inspired in its formation and it's in its ideology by the black power movement and the black arts movement in the US so it becomes very important right. and my book you know demonstrates this and argues that the Black arts movement and the Black Power movement that influenced the Black consciousness movement in South Africa. Those movements in the U.S. had South Africans in them. They had Black South Africans in them. That's fascinating. Yeah, so that, you know, when we speak of historical resonance, what the Black consciousness movement hears in Black Power ideology resounds South African voices as well as African American voices. Right. So that it's not a neat and discrete right. and nationalist organization called Black Power. It is a transnational organization that is also informed and inspired by black South Africans.
1: And Pan-Africanism isn't it? Absolutely, you know. Right.
2: Somebody like Hositile was so, so crucial in bringing the politics of the continent, the politics of Congo, of Senegal, Mm. of Ghana, of Mozambique, Frelimo, MPLA, of bringing those politics into the awareness of African-Americans, of saying to them, yes, your struggle here is very, very important But know that the struggle is interconnected with the struggle of Mozambique, with the struggle Mm. of Angola, with the struggle of, of Senegal. Know that your struggle is a Black internationalist struggle. And we must see it as such, and we must be in solidarity in fighting against Western imperialism and white supremacy. Well said. And this is how, you know, some African-Americans in the 60s and early 70s traveled to the continent. Hmm. There was a kind of world, a black world that was opened to them to say that, okay, this is not the it and all of our existence. We have kin, we have brothers and sisters who are also facing the same forces of evil and oppression and subjugation. And some of them there on the continent have just gained independence. So let us travel there and see what it really means to be an independent Black person. African-Americans in America have only known Intrapeco, you know, at that point. Mm. All they have known is just Jim Crow and slavery and so forth. So that it was just vitalizing for them to travel to the continent upon having been in the company of people from the continent, to go there and see what is happening on the continent. Oh, there are independent Black people? That is interesting. Would have never thought of such. And they were inspired to come back and start thinking in a different direction. Malcolm X, his journey to the continent radically redirected his his journey, you know? So, yes, the Pan-African movement deeply
1: shaped the African-American movement. Wonderful, 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 wonderful Uhuru Palapala. Pala. Let me do a, a poem as well by our own uh, Willie Hositile. It's titled June 16, Year of the Spear. This was recommended by a dear friend of Willie. They met in the 80s in Chicago. This is the African-American novelist, poet, and short story writer, Jeff Renard Allen. Thank you so much for the recommendation, my brother. It's six stanzas, so I'll just do the last three so that I don't take too long. My mother's father's, of my father's kinsmen, because I am June 16, and this is not Soweto, 1976. I emerge in the asphalt streets of our want. And because my memory is surrounded by blood, my blood has been hammered to liberation song. And like rebellious bullets, a NATO sacred hope. I am flowering over the graves of these gold angel fascist goals all over this land of mine. I am June 16, as Arab Ahmad says, my Body is the fortress, let the siege come. I am the fire line and I will besiege them for my breast is the shelter of my people. I am June 16, I am Solomon Mashangu, I am the new chapter I am the way forward from Soweto. I am poetry flowering with AK-47 all over this land of mine. June 16, year of the spear. Ew,
2: ew, 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 ew! Amanda! Ew. <laughs> there was a time that I couldn't read that poem without crying. Oh my God. That poem. So
1: visceral, yeah.
2: Potent. Potent. I am the fortress. Let the siege come. Mm, 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 (laughs)
1: mm, 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 mm. That's Brawili for you. (laughs) Mm. This is wonderful. So we're coming to the end of this conversation. It's been wonderful to be with you, my dear sister Uhuru Palapala. I'm hoping Cairo is good to you and you'll come back even more nourished to nourish all of us. And now we move to the tribute section. The empty chair for this episode is Zhang Guichi, who is known by his pen name Luang. He is a poet imprisoned in China. In July last year, he was imprisoned for calling on the Chinese president to resign. You know what? When a regime imprisons its poets, its public intellectuals, It writes its name in red ink. It writes its name in blood. It crowns itself as a terror state. It crowns itself as a terror state. I wonder, Uhuru, if you have a tribute for our dear comrade poet,
2: Yes, I didn't
1: pen it myself, but it is a poem by Mahmoud Dawish. Ah, my favorite poet from Palestine, occupied Palestine. Go for it. It is titled, I Belong There. I
2: belong there. I have many memories. I was born, and everyone is born. I have a mother, a house with many windows, brothers, friends and a prison cell with a chilly window. I have a wave snatched by seagulls, a panorama of my own. I have a saturated meadow. In the deep horizon of my word, I have a moon, a bird's sustenance, and an immortal olive tree. I have lived on the land long before swords turned man into prey. I belong there. When heaven mourns for her mother, I return heaven to her mother. And I cry so that a returning cloud might carry my tears. To break the rules, I have learned all the words needed for a trial by blood. I have learned and dismantled all the words in order to draw from them a single word.
1: Home. Hmm. That is one of my favorite poems. Dawish does it in such a soulful way, and and as he does it, he 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 brings you to that realization that Palestinians too are human like the rest of us, and a world that forgets Palestine is a world that has forgotten itself, its humanity. Thank you so much for dedicating this poem to the Chinese uh, imprisoned poet, publisher, Zhang Guichi. I've written mine in Zulu, so I'll read it. It says, Naye Umbulali, Kasilo Ilanga, Umoya Nemvula, Naye Unjandini, Liom Elangagubo, apenduge umhambuma wezintaba. kakusiye umuntu, onwenda, izitunzi zabantu gechele ntaba. Ezi nzuluini zompefumulo wako, ulingoza. Umemeza Abagini Sigutwellingam Yemitandazo Spi Komsa Sebuya Kom sabuya yo kom sa sibuya yo guyo bekunzi kom sa sibuya yo. Gomla sibuya yo gomla sibuya yo go yo bezi gom sibuya yo sibuya yo gomla sibuya The poem that I've just read is in my mother tongue, "IsiZlo. Now I read a loose translation into English. Even the murderer is not the sun. He is not wind or rain. Nightfall will also come unexpectedly for the dictator. He too will be exiled. In the darkest mountains of torment. No human being smears shit on people's dignity. I hear you call out your beloved ones at your hour of pain. We are lifting you up. In endless songs of solidarity, we are at war. We are at war. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Uhuru Palafara, my sister. What a beautiful, what a beautiful conversation I've had. Thanks to Penn South Africa, and thanks to Lara, and to Andrew, all the wonderful people, and to Bunganikon, of course and the rest of the team.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you to you too.
0: Thank you to Sandile and Uhuru for this beautiful, inspiring and deeply moving way to remember and honor Korapetse Khozitsile. This episode was produced by Andre Bennett. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to PennSA board members, Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan jones Radkowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of Season 7 of The Empty Chair, A Transatlantic Conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pennsouthafrica.org co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.